Welcome to Psyched for Business, helping business leaders understand and apply cutting-edge business psychology principles in the workplace. Hi, and welcome to Psyched for Business. My name is Richard Anderson. Thank you for joining me. In today's episode, I'm joined by chartered psychologist Andrew Munro. I'm really delighted to have Andrew back on the podcast for the second time. The first one we recorded was called Why Do Intelligent People Do Stupid Things? And that's also well worth a listen. But in today's episode, we cover the very interesting and slightly contentious topic of validity in assessment. What does it mean? How is it evaluated? And is all what it seems? Hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks again for listening. Andrew Monroe, welcome back to Psych for Business. Um, it's great to have you on the show again. Thank you for joining me. How are you doing? All good. And uh, thanks for asking me back. I uh, enjoyed hugely our uh, last discussion. That was uh, that was great fun. Yeah, me too, Andrew. And um, the listeners won't know this, but I'll tell them. But you're you're sitting in a very exotic country at the minute, uh, enjoying the break. <laughs> aren't you? I'll I'll, I'll be You were telling me all about it, and I'm I'm suitably envious. I have to say so. We uh we hope you're having a good time out there, but um, but listen, just to just to I guess briefly recap on the introduction that I that I gave you last time in the first podcast. So you're a chartered psychologist, of course. You've worked in the area of assessment, and I'm going to emphasise the word validity because, of course, that's what this podcast is all about. You've done that for 30 years now. Um, you're a director at Talent World Consulting. You're also an associate of Invisia learning. Um, and you've also, and I must put this in, um, I very much enjoyed your book, A to Z and Back Again, Adventures and Misadventures in a Talent World. Um, Andrew, you know, we've decided and we had a little bit of deliberation, you and I, after the last podcast about what the next one could be about. And we've decided yes. to, yeah, and we've decided to make it all about the topic of validity. Um, there's a few reasons why we've done that. I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into this topic. Um, we both know it's a slightly contentious one, uh, to say the least. It splits a lot of opinion. Um, so, yeah, really looking forward to getting stuck in. Oh, good, good. Okay, so if you're happy for me to, um, I'm going to kick off by summarising a small section of A to Z and back again, your book. So I'm going to open quotes now and say, a conjuring act pulls the white rabbit of validity out of the hat of a data set. Here, the magic depends on missing the sleight of hand that, one, generalizes with a puff of smoke and well-positioned mirrors from a data set that is small and an unrepresentative sample. Number two, waves the wand of statistical trickery and corrections to astonish and baffle. Three, sets the glamorous assistant in half, but avoids cross-validation with a different data set. Number four, climbs the Indian rope to disappear out of view without reference to any independent replication. At this point, even the rabbit looks surprised that it managed to jump out of the magician's hat to appear in a test publisher's manual. It's very amusing. It's very hard-hitting. There's a lot going on there. Start off, Andrew, if you're happy to, by giving us an unplugged summary of validity, please. Uh, okay, Richard. Uh, th- thanks for that passage. I think uh, Masood, my uh, co-author, and I, I think we both got a bit carried away with that uh, conjuring um, analogy. <laughs> we bit, we bit overblown. Um, but the point is that validity is in a bit of a mess. 
This is an unplugged podcast, and we can put in the technical stuff, definitions, methodologies, and so on, into the transcript uh, notes. Mm -hmm. So my uh, working definition for this um, conversation over the next 30 uh, minutes or so is that validity establishes if an assessment does what it claims. As simple as that. Mm. And without a uh, specific claim, validity becomes a very uh, slippery uh, construct, and it's one that's opened all sorts of interpretation and uh, endless circular uh, debates. Yeah, and I've, I've certainly seen that, I have to say. But, but why don't we um, yeah. kick off with an example of, of what you mean, if you've got one. A vendor selling a language-based assessment. He uses text, textual analysis to generate insights into personality. And uh, the website announces, our science is validated and has over 20,000 citations on Google Scholar. Mm-hmm. Okay. I then scroll down the listings for a range of applications, including recruitment. That's what I'm interested uh, in right now. Mm -hmm. And I read an article, quote, predicting mental health status in remote and rural farming communities. Mm. I have no doubt whatsoever that linguistic analysis methods can be affected. Uh, you, might, you might want to run a sentiment analysis on your own uh, LinkedIn post, Richard, mm -hmm. and you'll, uh, you'll get the idea. But the vendor's making a generalized statement about a promising methodology. It's not a specific claim, and it's not relevant to my requirement to, for example, implement a test to recruit staff in the social care uh, sector. Yeah, yeah, it makes total sense. And thinking about you, of course, have been on both sides of the table haven't you so you've been a, a client uh, but you've also been a consultant when it comes to validity and, and tests and those types of things so if you put yourself in in your shoes when you were a client reviewing claimed assessment validity from different vendors what, what was your own experience oh uh, lots actually but um a specific one of, one of my uh, bosses um, asked me to meet a uh, potential new assessment vendor. The uh, specific tool had intuitive appeal. It had a very differentiated position in the test marketplace. And my uh, boss and I, we both thought it might complement some of the aspects of our uh, talent uh, processes. I bet you were looking forward to the meeting. Yeah, absolutely. So as part of the pitch, the vendor worked through uh, the deck. I don't know if you remember uh, those days. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, very well. And one slide made the extraordinary claim of predictive power expresses a validity coefficient of 0.93, a figure unheard of in talent assessment. I asked her, how was this figure derived? And practically, what did this level of predict uh, predictive uh, validity uh, mean? Okay. And so, so just to go back to that term, validity coefficient so you said 0.93 i think you said so yeah yeah just for the, for the benefit of our listeners validity coefficient what, what does that mean in in layman's terms like the company would i don't know have a 93 percent accuracy in future assess assessment or yeah i don't know business performance increasing by 93 percent. what does that mean uh well you ask um and I, I did, and I, I was none the wiser. Okay. Um, and things actually got a bit more awkward when I asked uh, about the methodology 
that had generated this uh, figure of 0.93. And we're back to the uh, conjuring trick and the rabbit from uh, a rabbit from the uh, hat. And my uh, boss, uh, he did the uh, diplomatic thing and um, concluded the meeting, and uh, and that was that, really. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad you asked the same question that that, that I did. That makes me feel a little bit better. But um, let's okay. So so let's go into that a bit more. So what what are the factors? Well, what what I suppose what are the factors that affect validity for you? So let me answer uh, your uh, question this way, uh, Richards. A few years ago, uh, with my uh, good friend, uh, Dr. Paul Barrett, I, uh, well, we both posted a competition on uh, LinkedIn. Okay. An award would be given to the test publisher who could provide evidence of the business impact of a personality test in a selection uh, context. Hmm. This was going to be a variation of the uh, paranormal uh, challenge. Uh, this is the one where a magician and skeptic James Randi offered $1 million to anyone who could show evidence of a paranormal power or, or event. I remember that. Yeah. Over a 1,000 people applied. None were successful. Uh, sp- spoon-bending Yuri Geller, he uh, refused to uh, take the uh, challenge. Sounds like a brave challenge that you set in, in our world of validity then. So what conditions were set like what were the parameters what did you what did you do to to award the million dollars um okay why, why don't you have a, a go yourself uh, richards um yeah okay so let's say something like um i don't know thinking about validity so an improvement on current process maybe or just a i suppose a tangible evidence of business benefit uh, you're thinking as a sensible person, uh, Richard, but you're not thinking as a psychometrician. I uh, <laughs> I won't run through all the criteria, but for example, um, number one, um, a base rate of current success had to be available. Is the new test an improvement on existing selection processes? Is it yeah, even that... better than tossing a coin? Yeah, I I, I get it. That 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 makes sense as a starter. What what else did you have in there? All right, number two, there had to be a decent uh, sample size. Uh, Paul and I said it at a modest 150. Mm-hmm. So this was going to rule out the personality test that relies on validation from 45 bus drivers, 63 zookeepers. And it's the kind of nonsense, the, uh, the BPS, the British Psychological Society, uh, the test review uh, process gives out uh, smarties for when it comes to evaluate test publisher uh, submissions. Okay. okay, I like it. Okay, so 150. Um, okay, base rate of current success. What else? Um, and the most important uh, condition, and I think this turned out to be the most uh, demanding, mm. successful candidates were tracked and meaningful performance data linked to uh, business outcomes, sales, productivity, service, uh, they were obtained after a year. Mm. So rather than rely on subjective supervisory ratings, objective criteria of work outcomes of some organisational value, uh, they had to be applied to meet the uh, criteria of the uh, of the psychometric uh, challenge. Okay. Um, so so I'm not no expert in validity, as you, as you know, Andrew, but it, it does crop up from time to time. And one of the things that I often observe or think is that 
isn't it pretty difficult to obtain those sorts of metrics in a lot of businesses that you've required to meet the challenge? Um, it's a fair point. Um, and I know um, you want to come on to talk about uh, metrics, uh, but quickly I'll mention a paradox. On the one hand, the test publishers say that objective testing is required because managers are completely hopeless in recruitment interviews, performance appraisal, and talent reviews. Not true, by the way, okay. but that's the narrative. Yeah, yeah. We need the rigor that psychometric testing provides, and it does provide uh, rigor. I'm not uh, arguing against uh, psychometric uh, testing. But hold on a minute. The metric for validation is the evaluations that you, the psychometricians, are criticizing in the first place. Yeah, so almost the test validation almost hinges on the lack of validity that it's arguing against in in the yeah. first place. Yeah, yeah, I, I see the paradox 100%. Um, okay, then how did, the, how did the competition run? Were you nervous about the outcome? I'm, I mean, million dollars on the table? <laughs> I had complete faith in uh, Paul. Um, so it was a very entertaining exchange, and uh, we reviewed many, many uh, submissions. Uh, there were a fair number of challenges about the criteria and the methodology, um, which were completely uh, reasonable. A few uh, test publishers got uh, rather heated, uh, but to answer your question, no. No study met the conditions. Yeah. So just like Randy then, million dollars was never awarded. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Good stuff. My wife was uh, uh, relieved. Yeah, I bet she was. <laughs> that example was based on personality testing in a selection scenario. But we're trying to make a more uh, fundamental point that we need to look at validity in context and... Uh, here, I would highlight another uh, factor which is often uh, neglected, selection ratios. If I'm in the position of recruiting only one out of every 30 applicants, I'm in a very different ball, ball game to being forced to choose one in three applicants. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that is a very fair point. It, it might actually, thinking about and explain something. So one of the things that I was always puzzled by was that piece about Google and Google made the decision to abandon the use of the cognitive ability test. So I mm. think they found zero correlation between the test results and the performance of those individuals in the roles. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but thinking about it in just the point you made there, if you've got a hiring ratio that is only probably allowing you to recruit one candidate out of, I mean, hundreds of applicants probably, then how are you going to see any correlation at all or much of one anyway? For an analytics uh, company, uh, very surprisingly, Google forgot the problem of uh, restriction of range. If the majority of your shortlisted candidates are at the um, 95th percentile or above on cognitive aptitude, why would you expect much differentiation in performance from the test scores within a very highly uh, selected uh, group? And here Google should have looked at other potential predictors um, in the assessment process. Yeah, because I think um, a lot of companies just followed suit, didn't they? Because Google is supposed to be the exemplar, the shining best mm. practice. But um, 
but they're not representative of every company out there because they, you know other companies they'll not have anything near the volume of applicants that that Google get. Yeah, it was a big mistake. Yeah, and I think um, as I remember it with Google, they they had problems with the, you know, when they, the the whole I guess the number crunches came up with a with an algorithm for promotion readiness within the business, and uh, the line managers refused to accept it. Um, a few issues um, on that one, uh, Richard. One was about ownership of decision-making. Mainly, however, I suspect even Google's manager managers didn't trust their own algorithm on this one, yeah. and with good reason, which I uh, think uh, uh, you, you want to explore and cover a bit later. Excellent. Um, okay, so just very quickly to summarise the last part of this discussion, um, or the last part of the conversation that we've just had there, so you're saying that validity must be considered in the round. I, you know, I get that. Um, there's something that's that's niggling a little bit, and I think that we should maybe explore a little further. So would you mind just doubling back on the issue sure. of validity and, and, and what it means? So I've heard quite a few times, and again, it's it's nice because I'm obviously we, we work with you know, assessment psychometric technology, but I'm not involved in the, the validity aspect of it. And one of the things sitting on the periphery almost, I hear the term meta-analysis yeah. when it comes to validity and validation studies. Would you mind telling our listeners, what do we mean by meta-analysis, Andrew? So meta-analysis, uh, it's a methodology to consolidate hundreds of different uh, studies from uh, different samples. And the pro, uh, procedure is intended to, um, well, basically iron out the wrinkles mm. uh, to correct for various statistical anomalies from all the vagaries of different uh, research designs and the outcome uh, to summarise the evidence for the validity of uh, different assessment methods. Okay, so, so given we know what we know um, from the meta-analysis research, I suppose we can generalise to say that this assessment method has solid validity. Um, and as a practitioner, I guess we can use it with confidence. Uh, uh, yes and no, uh, but mainly no. Okay. Uh, Meta-analytical uh, studies, they certainly do provide an overview of which assessment methods deserve more or less attention. So we can rule out graphology as a selection method. No robust mm -hmm. study at any time has found any validity uh, for it, but, and this is the big but, meta-analysis suggests an assessment might work, but that's a far cry from proclaiming it actually does work within a practical setting. And here we're back to uh, the issues of context, base rates, and so on. Okay. The other issue for uh, practitioners uh, is which meta-analytical study do we sign up to? Mm. Do you know the BBC docu-sitcom, The Thick of It? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. And there's a line from Malcolm Tucker. So Malcolm's the political spin doctor, and he's uh, saying to a civil servant, and I won't attempt the voice of uh, <laughs> the, the actor uh, Peter Capaldi, you've been speaking to the wrong expert, you've got to ask the right experts. And there's a bit of which experts in the world of uh, meta-analysis. Okay, right, got you. Um, I checked 
the reference um, that you sent me, you know, the LinkedIn post by by Paul Barrett. Yeah. Um, and he rank ordered the results from four different meta analytical studies, um, basically to find conflict in summaries. And as I understand it, because of the different assumptions of statistical methodology, they came up with quite different conclusions. It's, it just seems really messy. It is, but it's largely one of the uh, makings of the uh, psychometricians through um, a lack of uh, transparency and also applying statistical wheezes that in principle indicate validity, but in practice are a million miles from uh, real-life application. It's really interesting stuff, I have to say. Um, Okay, why don't we move on to methodology and metrics? Yep, because if we don't have the relevant metrics, no magical methodology will pull our white rabbit from the hat. <laughs> exactly. Um, so let's go back to what we were talking about around objective measures of work performance. So they're often much more difficult to access, as we've as we've previously touched on. So if a organisation, if they if it doesn't know who is or isn't you know, within the staff base, having a, a business impact, whether that's service responsiveness, productivity, sales, innovation, whatever, that seems to me to be a bit of a more fundamental problem. Of course. If an organisation can't differentiate levels of performance and other um, success outcomes, it's a yardstick for uh, validation becomes uh, next to uh, meaningless. Yeah. Okay, so just to check my understanding on this, so we're going to identify a, a key success metric or many metrics and check the relationship with these metrics that we've identified against the scores on the assessment that we want to validate. I'm assuming that if we find a decent relationship between the two, then there's going to be potential to improve performance on that success outcome, whether that's I don't know, in selection or in the learning and development practices. Um, and then, of course, we, we apply that. Um, yeah, I mean, that's how the uh, methodology uh, works. Imagine a scenario, and we want to validate a test that we think has potential to improve the effectiveness of surgical teams in the uh, National Health Service. This is not trivial. This test has the potential to save patient lives. What metric would you draw on for test validation? Well, I guess in in that example, maybe um, outcomes from operations over time, something like that. Um, I guess pr- preferably across a range of hospitals and medical procedures. Uh, yeah. But what if we find if the head surgeon of a hospital is so extraordinarily talented that he or she and their teams end up taking on the difficult cases that other surgeons and other hospitals don't go near. Their apparent success rates might be relatively lower vis-a-vis their peers in other hospitals, but only because only because they're uh, so successful. Yeah, I, I see the problem there. Or, just to uh, keep the uh, NHS theme uh, going, mm. What if we find that the nursing teams, which report higher higher error rates during operations, 
turn out, in fact, to be the better teams. The better teams encourage honesty, the acceptance of uh, mistakes to learn. Conversely, the worst nursing teams cover up their mistakes and report lower error rates. Yeah, a black box thinking there. So that reminds me of the Cobra effect, which uh, which no doubt you're aware of, and um, it's a I suppose it's a great example of the law of negative in unintended consequences. Um, and for, for anybody who isn't familiar with the, the story of the Cobra effect, so it was it was during British rule in India, and I think the government were becoming increasingly concerned about the number of venomous cobras in I think it was Delhi. Um, I think the government basically offered a, a, a bounty for anybody that could bring in a dead cobra. And obviously the consequence of that, um, you had a lot of entrepreneurial opportunists who began to breed cobras. Um, and the government, obviously, once it realized what was going on, they ended the program. But the, the other consequence to that was that the cobra breeders who um, were left with basically thousands of worthless snakes, they freed the cobras and it grew. So it was infinitely worse than it was in the first place. It's a great example. Um, we have to choose our uh, metrics with uh, with uh, great care um, as part of our uh, validation um, uh, projects. I, I absolutely. Um, so okay. So we've we've run our validation study. Let's assume that, um, and again, assuming that we've got a decent data set and that the metrics that we've decided on uh, in terms of success are they're robust, they're defensible. How do we report back and use the findings for practical improvements in assessment and development? The standard format, which we've uh, touched on uh, briefly, is the correlation coefficient. Uh, And this is the typical statistic, uh, which gets reported in test publisher manuals, as well as in uh, research articles. Okay, so just again, just to touch on that term, the, the correlation coefficient. Um, really conscious, just to we'll we'll, we'll try and get it um, explained for the the layman. What do we mean by the correlation coefficient, Andrew? Um, yeah, um, uh, good question. I mean, the, 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 this is validation unplugged. Um, so the validity coefficient uh, is an index uh, running between zero and one. Zero relationship means there is no relationship between yeah. test scores and whatever success criteria uh, we're applying through to one, a perfect correlation. And in the assessment space, we're typically looking at validity coefficients of around 0.3 to 0.5. Got it. Makes sense. A couple of risks with the um, correlation coefficient. Uh, the most obvious is uh, this number is a spurious number. Um, a bit of a tangent, uh, but bear with me, uh, Richard. Okay. What, what, what do you think the correlation is between, say, per capita cheese consumption and death rates through being tangled up in bed sheets? Okay, that's an interesting question. I, um, I think I might know where, where <laughs> you're going, but, but you know, in, intuitively, I would say zero. But then unless we think that the cheese apparently gives us nightmares and then nightmares create nighttime panic and you could become snarled <laughs> up in the sheets, I suppose. So perhaps a very, 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 very small correlation. As it turns out, it's a hefty 0.94. Wow. Extraordinary, isn't wow. it? 
And there's a great website, and it's worth posting the uh, link in the transcript. Okay. Uh, the reports more of these types of uh, spurious, cor- uh, spurious correlations. Uh, they're, they're, they're great fun. Okay. Robert Matthews, uh, mathematics uh, professor at uh, Birmingham, he said, correlations are like coincidences. We take them less seriously if we're more aware of how easily we find them. So first off, let's not uh, let's check we're not being we're not fooling ourselves by being fooled by randomness. Correlations that are thrown up as uh, statistically significant, but are just a consequence of the um, the games we play in statistics and of no uh, practical value. Lies, damn lies, and statistics. <laughs> yeah. And the other giveaway is phony precision. If spurious correlations are too good to be true. Phony precision is the red flag that something odd is going on. Okay. And you're sceptical of studies that report a correlation to more than two decimal points? Uh, Yeah. Someone's playing the science game uh, without understanding science. Okay. And it's the law of phony precision that caught out a very well-known US psychologist with her uh, positivity uh, ratio um, embarrassed by uh, the finding that this was all uh, uh, flimflam, she said, quote, I didn't understand the maths. Okay. She still continues to uh, promote the, uh, the book, though. Right. And the final observation, and I know we are sort of slightly plugging, uh, plugging back rather than unplugged, is a correlation coefficient uh, summary index. You report a validity coefficient of 0.5. So far, so good. Highly uh, respectable uh, figure. But what does the pattern of test scores map to the success criteria look like? In life, show me the money is good advice. Mm -hmm. In validity world, visualize the data is great advice. Literally, display the pattern visually on a scatter plot to indicate the relationship between test scores, x-axis, and mm-hmm. the uh, success criteria in the y-axis. Is it a nice clustering of dots indicating uh, a clear pattern, or is it just a mess of uh, plotted data? Right, right. And there's a terrific um, site on correlation coefficients that asks the uh, question, what does a correlation of 0.5 look like? Uh, the answer once you plot all the permutations on a scattergram is pretty much anything you like. Right. So so what then, Andrew, are the alternatives to the correlation coefficient? Uh, My my preference is to apply good old-fashioned expectancy tables. Um, So here we group our data, uh, our data points into quadrants, low and high test scores vis-a-vis low and high criterion scores. Mm. And we report as percentages. And it sounds simplistic. It isn't. It's a variation of um, an approach that actuaries use all the time to uh, forecast uh, likely outcomes. And uh, to my mind, it's a much more direct and meaningful way uh, to interpret validation results rather than uh, the abstraction of uh, a number, the number of the correlation coefficient. Yeah, it's really interesting. Okay, so that, I think, is a good link to the final topic we said we'd discuss, and that's all about validity and its application in 
decision-making for selection. Um, so the question, how do we translate the validity studies into a decision-making model that improves, for example, recruitment? A possible uh, tangent uh, tangent again, uh, but uh, I thought it's just been uh, triggered. Are we uh, selecting, as part of our recruitment uh, strategy, are we selecting in for exceptional levels of success or are we screening out to avoid damaging failure? Okay, what, what do you mean by that? Could you, would you expand a little bit, please? There are some roles where more is more. Uh, sales is a good example. Every successful appointment you make has a direct impact on the company's bottom line. Hmm. So the, the, we, we therefore want to uh, select the outstanding uh, performers. There are some roles, however, where less is more. You take the head of safety at a nuclear processing company. Mm. Brilliance isn't going to put much on the bottom line, but in- incompetence will have devastating consequences. Uh, yeah. And our validity uh, research should guide our strategy, select in or screen out. And expectancy tables are way better at highlighting which uh, selection selection uh, strategy is optimal rather than use a single index of the validity coefficient. Okay. And in your experience, then, how open would you say companies are in the way that they implement their assessment processes? Two two strategies. One is um, explicit, and there's a clear logic. It's open, it's transparent, it's defensible, Mm. and there's a theory behind how we've used the validity uh, research to shape our decision-making algorithm uh, to connect uh, cause and consequence. Mm. The second is the uh, mysterious secret sauce of proprietary intellectual property. This is becoming increasingly uh, common uh, and linked to development uh, development in the use of um, AI and assessment. Here the assessment isn't interested in theory. We're only interested in patterns um, associations that connect test data to a metric of um, success. Um, and the problem, without a model of cause and effect, we get excited with number one, back to the randomness of number crunching, and uh, secondly, potential bias from the data set, which generated the numbers yeah. in the first place. Okay, and, and wasn't it... Um... Amazon, uh, they got caught out with this this whole approach, and they, I think, as I recall it, they they brought in artificial intelligence to review the job applicant resumes, CVs. Um, the idea, of course, was to widen that whole talent pool, and they would scan the internet for suitable candidates. Um, and I think the machine learning that they used, which was screening out applicants, um, it was using data from an overwhelming proportion of males based on the whole, the, the previous applicants. Um, obviously, as a result of that, the, the new engine just didn't like women and uh, obviously they had to abandon the project. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, earlier this week, I saw um, a McKinsey report and the researchers announced companies are already using AI to create sustainable talent pipelines. Hmm. At this stage, I would say... One, I doubt it very much, but do share a few examples. And uh, secondly, if these companies are, 
without any kind of validation. They're being uh, very, very brave, if not uh, reckless. Mm. Another example, one of my uh, clients was using a a well-known assessment, an application from one of the big uh, global consultancies. Uh, No names, but uh, uh, lots of uh, shame. And uh, my client was concerned. The results didn't quite feel right. Okay. Uh, that was her um, intuition. Uh, she's a highly experienced professional. She's worked with lots of um, assessment tools. And she had a bit of unease about um, about the report um, outcomes. How did it play out? Uh, well, I uh, said, um, trust your intuition. Um, ask the vendor for the original test data, the data before the black box waits, recalibrates, and does its other uh, magical stuff, and we can analyze what's going on. Mm. Uh, the firm refused to share the data. Mm. When an assessment firm isn't prepared to collaborate as part of an independent validation uh, review, someone's fooling someone. Mm. It's a bit like the Wizard of Oz. Don't look behind the curtain. Yeah, of course not. It was only bluffing bananas behind the uh, behind the curtain. <laughs> Apart from the um, secrecy, my uh, other reservation is the complexity uh, of the algorithms hidden away inside the uh, black box. Uh, One for another discussion, probably. But complexity is fragile. Complicated algorithms break down uh, very quickly. Mm. And the other worrying aspect um, of the black box is the impact on uh, diversity and inclusion. You mentioned uh, Amazon. Um, A few other uh, firms are facing legal challenge over black box decision-making. More will in future. I have no doubt of that whatsoever. Yeah, I'm sure sure you're right. Um, uh, I mean, that was was fascinating listening, Andrew. I'm going to probably attempt a bit of a summary of the conversation, if that's okay. So I think that um, the key takeaways... uh, I suppose, number one, we seem to be making validity probably a lot more complicated than it needs to be, um, I guess. Uh, you know, and unplugged, the question is, what is the specific claim made by an assessment? What's the evidence to support that claim? For practitioners, this seems a much more helpful question than show me the number of like a validity coefficient, for example. Yes, keep it grounded, keep it practical rather than abstract. Yeah. So I know that we've mentioned unplugged um, as, a, as a term throughout this podcast, and another one, I guess. So um, if we're not clear on what the definition of work success and the metrics that we use to validate the assessment, there's, there's going to be a real risk. Um, firstly, I guess, of simply selecting from the past uh, and those that line managers have previously rated highly. Um, and secondly, the hazard of the negative unintended consequences that we discussed before, if our metrics don't reflect the reality of success. And just to uh, jump in on that one, um, another example, uh, Richard, uh, there's a well-known measure of dark side leadership, uh, the Hogan Development uh, Survey. And this profiler identifies the negative traits dysfunctional, destructive behaviours of uh, leadership. And it was once deployed in a validation exercise at West Point. Uh, West Point's the academy for uh, future uh, military military leaders in the uh, US. 
and the research is in the public uh, domain. In a bit of a surprising uh, finding, several of the dark side dimensions, narcissism, being overly dramatic, being critical of others, being overly focused on rule compliance, actually had a positive effect. I'll repeat that, actually had a positive effect on the cadet's leadership development over time. Wow. And the authors conclude the results require some explanation. Well, they certainly do. When the so-called dark side turns out to be the bright side of success, something uh, strange is going on in the uh, validity world. Yeah, but interesting, very strange. Um, okay, the, I guess the other observation would be the need for transparency and, and simplicity uh, in the process of validation, like how it's reported, how the findings are then incorporated into, into organisational processes. Um we might run into problems legally and ethically if we're not going to ask what's in the black box. In three minutes, uh, Richard, you've um, <laughs> yeah. you've distilled my uh, thirty minutes of uh, wandering wanderings in Villacy world into a clear, unplugged summary, or at least um, our version of an unplugged uh, summary. And I'm sure uh, many of uh, many of our listeners might uh, disagree. But uh, I think that's a, a good summary, uh, Richard. Brilliant, and uh, and it was a, a, the thirty minutes that you mentioned was 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 fantastic to listen to. And uh, listen, re- re- huge thank you, Andrew. Um, I guess a couple of things just before we bring things to a close. Um, a transcript is going to be available, like it was last time, uh, as part of this podcast, which will be incorporated in the whole blog post on our website. We'll also have references in there from the various different sources that Andrew has cited and discussed. Um, Andrew, I, I must ask this. In the last podcast, you talked about a sequel to A to Z um, coming out soon. Is it is it available yet? Uh, Z to A. Um, that one had to be pushed back a wee bit uh, due to a couple of other uh, projects. Um, the plan is for um, autumn now, uh, Richard. But uh, thanks, thank, thanks for the plug on unplugged. <laughs> plug on unplugged. There you go. Brilliant, Andrew. Well, thanks ever so much yet again. Really enjoyed the discussion, and thank you for joining me on Psych for Business. Speak You're very you. welcome, Richard. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for listening to Psych for Business. For show notes, resources, and more, visit evolveassess.com. Bye.